Just past 7 o'clock. It's Monday night time for Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. Uh, Mike Balsamo going to be a great show as always. Ira, unfortunately, not in the studio with me. He's hanging out in New York, Ira. And this has been, you know, for all the jet setting and events you've taken in, this is a quiet week, but you did watch about 100 hours of the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, it's a very quiet week uh, uh, in terms of, uh, I think after all the NBA finals, you just need to relax. But <laughs> no fans are in, in, in Japan for the Olympics. But I, as I, we're going to talk about this, I did not expect to, I just said, look, the Olympics, the weird hours, I'm not going to follow. I got into it. I totally did. I think I watched more Olympics. I know the viewership was down by 50%. I think I, but whatever I had to need to increase it, it was me because I watched it more. I think I increased my Olympic ship watch ship of like 200% because I loved it. <laughs> I just was staying up late at night, watching whatever's happening at night. And then it goes to all throughout the night and getting up early. Like I'm trying to catch, you know, like getting up at 4.30, setting alarms for these times. I thought I'm like flying or something, you know, just trying to watch all the events, which I really enjoyed. And I, I think Americans came on strong the second week. Uh, some great, great performances by uh, team sports. The track and field, the women's track and field teams did great. Uh, the women's volleyball team amazing both the beach and the and, and the court did great and of course the basketball teams both won golds but it was uh united states took the, the winning they won the overall on the gold and they won the overall on the total medals and it was all because of that last like three four days when they actually passed china yeah it was actually it was the last day when we passed china in golds uh, we just won golds by one single medal so uh yeah congratulations to all the olympians we will uh we'll talk more about that in just a minute Ooh, we do have some breaking news uh, uh luka Doncic signs a, a massive 207 million dollar deal with the Mavs. More information coming out on that. That's going to be five years. Um, we're going to have uh, Bill Madden join us here in a little bit. Ira, tell us about him. Um, he's one of the top daily New York Daily News sports writers. He's been covering baseball for years. Uh, anyone who knows anything about New York sports has always been reading Madden's columns, and, and he's had many books on Steinbrenner. He just had a new book on uh, Tom Seaver that came out. Uh, we're in baseball season right now. We interviewed him a few months ago. I've been trying to get this interview on. Uh, it's a great interview. And it was just Tom Seaver is just one of, at one point, uh, we, I talked about how Giannis, when I was in Milwaukee, like owned the town. Now, And it's hard to own New York because you have the Yankee fans. But the time when Tom Seaver was pitching, they had 2 million fans going to Mets games, only a million going to Yankee teams. That was a Mets game. The Yankee, you know, the uh, New York was a Mets team in a Mets city. And Tom Seaver was just owned it, and he pitched every four days, and and was dominant nine innings pitching, and was this this great pitcher. Uh, like Degrom pitches six seven innings, everybody thinks he's so great. I mean, Seaver every game pitched nine ten innings uh, in terms of, of how he pitched and and his overall dominance, and for years after years, and winning the World Series title in '69, uh, just a, a fixture, one of the most popular New York athletes of all time. Yeah, and we'll get uh, we'll just, we'll do all that. It's just about seven thirty-five here on Ira on Sports. So Ira, um, we were talking before we went on air, and we lost a great one. And more importantly, he's a South Florida legend. Bobby Bowden passed away um, over the past week, and we were saying he's arguably the biggest coach in Florida history. I mean, it's him and Shula right up there. But he had an amazing career and, and great run with FSU. Well, is the all-time winner in the NFL in terms of wins, and Bobby Bowden is the second of all in NCAA wins within two national championships. One, if they're not one and one A, uh, there's just no. I can't even think of the, who would be the third. I mean, it's like Jimmy Johnson or something in terms of the Lane Kiffin. Florida. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> long way to go on that one, but. I think that a lot of people do not, they forget. We have been so much in the Alabama-Clemson mindset 
the last decade, it seems like. But between 87 and 2000, in the 14-year period, he was in the top five every year. They're going two, three, two, four, four, two, one, national championship. Then he was fifth, fifth, third, 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 national championship, and fourth. I mean, it's unheard of. It was like unbelievable. And it wasn't just they were. They were were favored. They could have won like three more national championships because they were like the number one team, and that's what the wide rights where they missed. They lost some games to Miami. But it was like every year they were either playing in the bowl game for the national championship. They were playing in something. You remember the BCS and all the whole way. They they factored everything. But they were – it was like every three, four weeks, Florida State is playing on national television in a game that you had to watch. And it was he was the coach, and he did an amazing job. And it was just exciting. And his his style of football was you know certainly you know away from the Big Ten. Just you know he was passing the ball and throwing the ball and doing all those things. Uh, just and it was great. I mean that's what he went to a, a program like Florida State did not have that history. He went to the team, and they were like nine and thirty the last two years before he got there. And people thought he was going to be like the next Alabama football coach. He's just from Alabama, came from West Virginia, but then just went on and uh, and and was just and won three hundred seventy-seven games. Actually, he won three hundred eighty-nine. Twelve of his wins were vacated for ridiculous reasons, and I think they're going to have to should give it back to him. And it was a battle between Paterno and Bowden for the all-time which is, uh, uh, win total, which is really weird that Paterno and Bowden only faced each other twice. Each one won one game in a bowl game, but. You would think that they would have scheduled games or something like that, but uh, just someone who, and, and the fact that he stayed at Florida State for 34 years and, and was this dominant, fat, you know, figure in, in Florida sports. I didn't go to the pros, didn't go to another program, but just went to a program and built it and stayed. Uh, and just the class, everyone who met him loved him. The reporters liked him. The players liked him. The fans loved him. He was just lovable by everyone. And to be in this profession that he was in, uh, and to have this. And sterling reputation and just as adoring, you know, and even in his retirement, uh, I thought Florida State screwed him at the end. I, I thought they, in terms of pushed him out for Jimbo Fisher, uh, they, I didn't give him, they should have probably given him another couple of years, but still, he was classy to the end, helped Jimbo out, helped the program out. He was just a, a great man. No, absolutely he was. And like you said, he, he, he was like bigger than football, I, I think, especially for people living in Florida, he was, maybe it was his personality, maybe it was a success, but there was just something special, and, you know, his charisma carried him so much, and Bobby Bowden's surely going to be missed. Yes, of course, definitely, definitely. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo at 710. Let's talk Olympics, Ira. Um, get right into it, because this is actually a pretty special day. Yeah, on this date, 85 years ago, Jesse Owens um, ran and they had the Berlin Olympics and you talk about the controversies and everything. People said people knew what Nazi Germany was and Hitler was there and it was his Olympics in 1936. Remember the war started right after that and uh, and and Owens came there and uh, in front of Hitler when Hitler was convinced that the Germans were going to win like every medal he won four gold medals and today was the one the day that he won his fourth medal 85 years ago today. Uh, so it's historic. I mean what Jesse Owens did was. Absolutely amazing under horrendous situations in terms of pressure and, and, and everything. But to go into Berlin and in front of Hitler and to win, uh, just uh, an amazing, one of the most amazing sports feats. It's going to be hard to be ever duplicated. Uh, but uh, that was on this date in history in terms of sports with the Olympics. So what happened in gymnastics? Well, we went off the air uh, last Monday, and we still had, Simone Biles still had one, had the balance beam left. And that was the last event final for the Olympics. And she uh, ended up winning the bronze and the balance beam. She entered it and won. 
Um, it seemed like that's all people are talking about. They didn't talk about the fact that the team won the silver with Gretchen McCollum, Cindy Lee, and Jordan Childs. Cindy Lee won the all-around gold, and, and uh, Cindy Lee won the bronze and even bars, and Jake Carey won the gold in the floor exercise. It just seems to be everyone talks about Simone Biles with the balance beam. Um, and that was, you know, that was the topic of the games, which I don't think it should be. I mean, Simone Biles is an all-time great gymnast. Whether she's the greatest of all time, I think there is some debate on that. I mean, she's clearly right, has performing things no one's ever performed before. But the fact is, is that it, I feel like it's now overtaken. There, are, there have been so many great performances by American athletes that it's Simone Biles. Nothing should be taken away from her past accomplishments. But someone should not say, "Well, this bronze medal is greater than all these other medals that Alice Felix won, or Katie Ledecky won, or Kyle Dressel won, or all these other other teams won." It just it seems to me that it seems like it's again still Simone Biles, Simone Biles, and not. And no light has been shown on all the other great American athletes, and they're just tremendous performances. No, absolutely, you're right. I hate when off the field stuff takes precedent. And unfortunately, the biggest sports network in the country—that's what they focus on. There's, there's, they're not showing highlights and analysis. They talk about what's happening off the field. It's like a soap opera of sports. So, of course, that's what we got pounded into us uh, for the past week, as opposed to the actual performances of these amaz- amazing athletes. I'll get off my soapbox now. Let's talk a little basketball, Ira, because I was worried about this team, especially when they stumbled out of the gate and it didn't seem like they were a cohesive unit. They pulled it together, won the gold. Well, let's we talk about pulling it together. We're going to talk about Kevin Durant because they, I don't think Popovich coached well. I don't really think on the whole, besides Drew Holiday, who played, Drew Holiday is an excellent basketball player. You can see how he makes steals and gets rebounds and assists, but this is Kevin Durant's Olympics. I mean, Kevin Durant was, I don't think, if Kevin Durant's not on his team, they're not even going to get a medal. I mean, that's how great Kevin Durant was in terms of uh, playing. I mean, this is a team that lost to Nigeria, lost to Australia, and go in the exhibition, and then loses in France the first game. But in the, in the knockout stages, they say, they beat Spain 95-81. Uh, Ricky Rubio was tremendous. I mean, if you're a Cleveland Cavalier fan and you just drafted, uh, traded for Ricky Rubio, you're like, wow, 38 <laughs> points in a game? This is amazing. And then in the semis, they played Australia, the team that beat them before. And, and Durant, again, 23 points, Booker at 20. But it was it was it was really just Kevin Durant scoring at will. It, it, when you watch Kevin Durant in the Olympics, it's it's you see him watching. I mean, look, I saw him score forty eight points and, and against Milwaukee against the Nets and how well he played. But he just cannot be stopped. I mean, he just can just blow by people on the dribble. He pulls up shoots and he plays great. He was asked to do everything. You know, he was, there was no center on these teams, so he's playing all the big men on defense. He's getting steals. He's passing the ball. He's making every shot they have to shoot with all this pressure on him and it's He's great. I mean, Kevin Durant's the best player in basketball. I mean, I like Giannis. I think Giannis is champion, and he's the best player. Because, but, but Kevin Durant and, and Giannis are the two best right now playing. I mean, it's just how he and offensively, there's no comparison. Giannis is. I mean, Kevin Durant's clearly the best player. And then in the uh, championship game, beating France only by five. Uh, but Durant again, whenever they needed points, Durant twenty nine points, six boards, three assists. I mean, Booker was zero for four and two points. Bam had six points. Lillard eleven. Uh, it was just. I was amazed at how poorly, I have to say this, as a big fan of the NBA, big fan of basketball, watching, I, I, just, I was shocked how poorly the American team players played. I mean, it, Bam Adebayo just did not look comfortable at all. Damian Lillard looked terrible. Uh, Holiday, I said, looked great. Tatum had one good game, uh, Jason Tatum from the Celtics, but I just think overall not that great. Booker, I can say because of the finals over, but it just seemed to be like it was just not – Chris Middleton played okay. Draymond Green looked terrible. I just think that he looked great at all. And Zach Levine for the Bulls, fair. But all in all, they, they just 
did not come together as a team. I don't think it, this is Kevin Durant. She got the gold medal, and everybody else just said thank you, Kevin. Because really, if without Kevin Durant, they don't medal. Um, let's move on. Talk about the uh, women's side. Well, on the women's side, uh, this is the, the American women's now have won nine golds in eleven Olympics. They won seven in a row. Uh, they beat Australia by twenty-four in, in the quarterfinals. They Serbia by fifteen in the or twenty in the semifinals. In the finals, they won by fifteen. Uh, they were. Brianna Stewart, what's amazing about this team is Sue Bird and Diana Trossi are the senior, they've been, this is their fifth gold medal, so they're older, late 30s playing, and, and they're key components of the team, shows the greatness. But then they have Brittany Grimer, Asia Wilson, and Brianna Stewart, who are the younger players, they're in the early 20s or mid 20s, and they're dominant. And there's really, that's the one thing, I mean, American, if the upset of all time would be the USA women somehow losing in a game. They are, they, they, yeah, they say well, the, the foreign field has, in terms of foreign players, the problem with the, with the foreign countries in terms of America is that they're all spread out. Like, Luka Doncic was amazing in the Olympics, but he solidifies himself as some now say the best player. We had great games. Uh, they lost in, in the semifinals to France, uh, 90-89. He had 16 points, 18 assists, 10 boards, with a chance to win at the end. Uh, but And then you see, like, Patty Mills for Australia had some great games. And I said, Gobert and Fournier for France played amazing with Batum. So, you, so you, you have situations where these players for the NBA, but they're all spread out on different teams. Like, America has enough really good players. But all the WNBA players are on the American team. So that's what makes them... Like it seems like you know all the top players are American players, and the women's game has not developed outside of America as much as the men's game has developed in these other countries. So speaking of women, <laughs> there hasn't really been a, a more ridiculously impressive uh, performance that I've seen outside of Tiger Woods, you know, in his prime, than what Nelly Cord has been doing as far as playing golf. I don't. Nelly Corda won the gold medal, and the second round, she. How about this? How would you like to go and double bogey your 18th hole and still shoot a 62 <laughs> in the Olympics? <laughs> I mean, she could have shot a 59 yeah, on a it's crazy. It easy, but not. It's not a 59 course. She's number one in the world. This is three tournament wins, including the PGA Championship. Uh, as we talked about, Nelly before, her father won the 98 Australian Open in tennis. Her brother, Sebastian, is ranked in the top 20 in the world, and as many people feel, is going to be the next great American tennis player. And her sister, Jessica, also won on the tour. Like, I was doing you, Jessica Gorda, and be on the Olympic team, one of the top uh, four best American golfers, win tournaments, and you're like Nelly's your sister. But, um, and she's dating, I, I asked you about who, Andres Atkinson, the L.A. King from the L.A. King. So that's who Nelly is dating. But, uh, uh, but Nelly, no, what, a, what an amazing year for her. Uh, and to win a major and the gold medal, which I think no one's ever done in terms of the men's too. No one's ever won a major and a gold medal the same year, uh, but just a dominant, dominant victory. I'm surprised she's not going after like Sidney Crosby or, or Connor McDavid. She's going after a, a third liner on the Kings, but no, she's amazing. It's incredible to watch. It's exciting stuff. Let's talk water polo. Well, as much as the women's team is dominant in basketball, the women's water polo team, it's their third consecutive gold medal. They won 14-5 over Spain. And I actually watched a lot of these games because I, I was amazed how they do this. I mean, they are so good. I mean, they, they are pounding each other. And they talked about how Jokic uses water polo, the, the Denver Nuggets, uh, the MVP of the league, because he's able to hold the ball. You can see, like, they're holding the ball. They're getting punched and kicked. And then they're throwing and they're swimming and they're treading water and everything. But America in the last, since like 12 years, the record is 130-3. and three. 
130 and three. That is like the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> they won three consecutive World Cups, three consecutive World Championships, three World Series, uh, th- three Olympics. And Maggie Steppens, who they consider now, she's the Michael Jordan or the goat of women's water polo. At one point, she caught an elbow to her face against China. She, it broke her nose. And she, that her eye was like blacked out. She had a black eye, broken nose, and was bleeding, but then came back in and then scored a goal. So, uh, but then, and the, and the goaltender, Ashley Johnson, is just amazing. I mean, she's 6'2. Uh, just stop it. It's like, this is a team. This is like if you took the most explosive hockey team. And then it was like Gretzky and Kyrie, one of the greatest hockey teams of all time. And then you also had like the greatest goaltender on that same team. Because they have a, the best goaltender in the history, maybe, of water polo and the, the, the greatest offensive team. And that's why never, they can't lose. But it was a great win for women's water polo. It's essentially what the Tampa Bay Lightning have. And that's why they're back-to-back <laughs> Stanley Cup champs. They have the best goalie in the world, plus an amazing offense. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's hard to beat teams when they're playing like that. Um, what about uh, women's volleyball? Well, I stayed up that. That's the one that was like came on twelve thirty Saturday night, and it was like we're tied with China, so we had to win this to get it. Actually, we had another. It was another medal that 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 could put us over the top, a cycling medal. Medal, but uh, I liked the women's volleyball team because in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve they won the silver. Two thousand sixteen they won the bronze. They've been they were favorites in those, so they they came up short. And then Karts Karai, who was considered maybe the greatest male volleyball player of all times, coaching the women's team. He's had two golds on the, in volleyball and then one gold in beach volleyball. And they beat, ended up beating, they played Brazil in the, in the gold medal game, won three sets to none. Uh, Jordan Lawson and Saluki Gunderson, uh, this is their third Olympics. So they had failed the twice before, won the gold. Uh, Haley Washington is their blocker, was amazing at blocking. The, the Brazilians are great. They have a great team. But uh, this was just, a, it, was a, it was, I love watching this game. The, the player, the emotion when they won was one of the, I think, more emotion than almost anyone in the Olympics because it seemed like they'd been battling this for years, uh, coming up short, being the favorites, and finally getting through and winning. And their first, the first gold medal for uh, American women's volleyball after being so successful for so many years. And that was, and it was also exciting because it put them over China for the, the amount of goals. And then on the beach volleyball side, Alex Klitterman and April Ross won the gold against the Australian team. And that was in beach volleyball. And April Ross had won the bronze and silver. So this was her <laughs> chance. I mean, April Ross is one of the greatest volleyball players of all time, too. And she finally got her gold medal in this game. And uh, so it was, it was a great win for all around for the, for the, uh, for the women. And Alex Klitterman, who was like six three, six four. She was an indoor volleyball player and then went out to the beach to play. And I, all my friends who were volleyball players were excited and they thought this was great. And that was I, I just love I, I love volleyball. I love watching all these sports. Uh, but it was a it was a, a good a great great win for the United States. We got just about ten minutes here until we're going to get to uh, Bill Madden. Let's talk baseball. USA a little disappointing. Got shut out in the finals versus Japan. No, it was uh, it was Japan puts they stopped their entire season together. Puts everybody there, and the United States just still lost two nothing with uh, like Todd Frazier and Scott Casimir. So got to give credit for the American players for for actually just getting a silver medal out of that. What about wrestling? Uh, I have to say the two, Bill Taylor, David Taylor, they call him the Magic Man, was in the gold medal. He had won, hadn't like lost a point going into. He's one of the greatest wrestlers. He has never lost hardly a match. But he was fighting he's 86 kilograms, the Iranian fighter, who is also as good as Taylor, and they're both amazing. And and the Iranian fighter was winning with 20 seconds to go, up three two, and Taylor just dived at him and took him down and went up four three for a win. <laughs> it's just so exciting. And then on the and also Gabriel Stevens, Gabriel. Uh, 
Stevenson won the gold, uh, won the gold in the heavyweight, taking down with one second left the Georgian fighter. I'm telling you, Stevenson and Taylor, you're going to be seeing either in WWE or probably UFC because the, the enthusiasm they had and the ability, uh, you expect something like that's going to happen. And, T- and Tamira Mensa uh, made history for the first black woman to win a gold for the United States after she stormed away uh, in the 68 kilograms. But the United States dominated wrestling, which is people, that was like of all the sports, like we failed in men's track, but in wrestling, Americans, the USA did tremendous. Going to uh, equestrian activities, that you, it obviously hits close to home here with Wellington being one of the capitals of the sport. Jessica Springsteen, Bruce's daughter, spends a lot of time here. Her and Team USA took home a silver. Well, that was the name of having Bruce Springsteen's daughter competing in any event would be, I mean, if he was there watching it, it would be even bigger. But uh, that was a great win. It was, it, she was so excited. She was, they put her on with two experienced riders, and for her to get the silver medal and, uh, and jump off over Sweden, uh, that was great for her. And it's just, again, when you have these names, and look, she's, she has a name, and her father's one of the most famous singers of all time. But everyone says, like, she's, one, she's young, and she's going to be one of the best riders in the world, and she clearly and part of the team is. So it was a good win for that. And then just to mention, we'll go through a, two more sports really fast, is in boxing, uh, the United States, this boxing room used to be the number one everyone talked about. Oh, Sugar Ray Leonard, everyone, that's what they talked about. But Americans got three silvers. We've been not doing well in the years, the last few Olympics. But Duke Regan, Keyshawn Davis, and Richard Torres all won silvers. And then the one, the best Olympian of the entire Olympics was this 14-year-old Chinese driver who no, has never competed before in a competition, but all she did was get straight tennis. No one ever saw her compete before. And, like, the announcers were like, this is the best diver of all time. There's never been someone close. I mean, every, she just got every dive she had. Everyone just gave her 10. And she's 14 years old. So this question is, should a 14-year-old even be competing in the Olympics? I mean, they had the skateboarders were 13 years old. And I questioned, like, there has to be some more sort of minimum wage limit. Like, 16 seems to be a good number. I, I just don't know how a 14-year-old you should be allowing in the Olympics, but that was uh, the one thing with that. 725 Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's get into basketball, Ira. And it was an exciting free agent, or start to free agency, I should say. A lot of people in South Florida are really, really excited about what the Heat have done, but I think you are a little bit on the opposite opposite side of that. Uh, I'm not sold on it at all. I think getting Kyle, the trade for Kyle Lowry is was I just was I, I like Kyle Lowry. I like Kyle Lowry much better five years ago. I think he's 34. I think he's older, and I don't think he's at the elite level. I think people are putting it and and they got PJ Tucker who played for Milwaukee who really is not much of a scorer, but a good defensive player. I, they lose Kendrick Nunn. They lose Goran Dragic. They lose Trevor Reza. I, and they signed Duncan Robinson, five-year, $90 million contract. Just not sold on that at all. Just not sold that that is, this is going to make the Heat. Because I think the other teams did well. I think everyone in the East improved or at least stayed the same. I don't know if the Heat got much, much better. So I'm the biggest Heat homer you can imagine. But I'm a little nervous about this. I, maybe I'm more concerned because I don't like how Bam played in the Olympics. How Bam played terrible. He didn't look like a dominant self. He didn't look like someone who was going to lead this team uh, to the levels. I, I was just not impressed with his. I, I expected a lot more out of Bam out of Bio in the Olympics, and I didn't see it. Um, so our, our producer here, Mike Gooney, Marone, and, and myself were together when the news came across that Kemba Walker was joining the Knicks. And I'm not saying that this makes them a, a team to beat in the East, but you got to be encouraged if you're a Knicks fan with what this team put out last year and now going forward with a, the first real point guard we've had in two decades. Well, you know, Kemba gets hurt, though. So, I mean, he yeah. played great at Charlotte when he was late in Charlotte, went traded to Boston. It was some injuries. People didn't, he didn't. But the one stat was Fournier 
for the France was their dominant player. He beat the United States in the Olympics. You can see how he, he played in Orlando. And I've always been a fan of Evan Fournier. I think he's been a really good guard, guard forward player. Uh, when he and Parker played together with the Celtics, um, Tatum and Brown were out of the games. Walker averaged 29 points a game. So I think this is good because I think it lets Derrick Rose play like 20 minutes a game. I think Randall can improve. Uh, I think the key for the Knicks is Mitchell Robinson if he comes back as center and, and could be the superstar center. But, no, I think the Knicks improved. I like Walker. I think they were able to get him for not much. He really not. And, uh, and trading for Fournier with, or, or signing Fournier was great. So, look, I think the Knicks improved. That's one thing I'm saying. The Knicks, I think, got better. And, uh, and, 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 but the problem with the Knicks are they're like the fourth. They, they were the fourth seed, last, fifth seed last year. But are they that much better? Like, they probably, if they have a better year, and still be like the sixth or seventh seed, these other teams are yeah, exactly. It's it's still t- the East is getting better every day. Um, any other uh, free agency um, notes you want to touch on? Really, just the Hawks bring everybody back with John Collins. Um, the Nets bring everybody back, which they were going to do, and they signed Durant to four years, two hundred million dollars that they lost or Kyrie, but but Durant, and that's really the most important. Of course, the most important one. They did sign Patty Mills, and I like that signing a lot because Patty Mills is like Kyrie Irving. So now when Kyrie even gets hurt or decides not to play, Patty Mills scored 40 points for Australia. He says he played for San Antonio. He'll come in. I think he's the perfect complement to come in. and not, He's not going to miss. He's the same similar player to Kyrie, so I actually do love that signing. The Bulls improved a lot. They brought Lonzo Ball in and DeMar DeRozan, so we'll see what happens with there. Pacers bring everybody back. And the Cavs, Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, bringing Rubio in and signing Jared Allen, I think are nice. On the West, we talked about talk about the Lakers forever, uh, but the teams really stayed the same. The Suns, the Jazz uh, were good, and then the Warriors improved their bench. I like the Warriors a lot for next year. They brought Andre Godala left. He left the Heat. I was one player for Reference. Um, Otto Porter Jr. They drafted well. Wiseman a year is going to have a year under his belt, and they Clay Thompson comes back. So I like the Warriors. The Clippers bring back everybody, uh, and then Portland, everybody in Minnesota. So it seems like the other teams stayed stay great. And the only free agents out there are Dennis Schroeder, who turned down a four-year $84 million contract from the Lakers. He might be lucky to get a $5 million deal. I mean, this is, this is something he might go turn down $84 million and only sign a one-year $5 million guaranteed contract. But, uh, but besides that, that was, it's like one of those, it'll be interesting to see how this, I mean, last year we had a lot of movement in free agency. The year before, a lot of movement. This year, not so much movement. I think the key is the development of the younger players. Are these players that were okay last year going to step up and see what happens in terms of coming forward? One thing I will comment on the Durant signing. So I hate Kevin Durant. He's just, ever since leaving you know, leaving um, OKC to go join the team that beat them in the in the fi- in the conference finals twice. It was just a coward move. But I like that him. He signed a four year deal in the in the day and age where all these players are holding teams hostage, signing one year deals. He committed to a team, and you just don't see that that often. So uh, good for him. Going to baseball, Ira. This Thursday night's going to be pretty special. Yeah, Yankee and White Sox at the Field of Dreams. And I think a lot of people don't know what the Field of Dreams is. It was a movie that I think is a very much overrated movie by Kevin Costner. But some people say it's the best baseball movie of all time. I do not think it is. I've watched it again. I cannot get into this movie at all. But it's about a guy who built a field in the middle of Iowa. And baseball players played in it. And it's a very historic movie. Um, but they're actually going to play in a cornfield in Iowa, which is so cool. Like, to take these major league teams. Like, they've done it at the Little League uh, in Williamsburg, you know, at Williamsport, 
uh, for the Little League Baseball. So I like when teams do this. I think it, it takes you have 162 games of the season, just like do with hockey outside at the stadiums. I think it's a great move. They tried to do this last year, but because COVID, they couldn't do it. So I think this is going to be so exciting. One of the things that's interesting, I saw an overhead view, and it doesn't look like there's an outfield fence. It's just... You know, <laughs> limitless, and then trees. So it's like playing baseball when you were a kid in a field. That's <laughs> a home run was in the trees. I can't find it. So pretty cool uh, how that worked out. I'm going to be excited. Anything uh, you want to touch on baseball wise? We've only got about 50 games left. Yeah, 50 games left, and, and, the, and the Tampa Rays are on fire. The Red Sox are folding, and this week the Rays and the Red Sox play three games. It's going to be crucial. Yankees finally got uh, got going, uh, and then Rizzo who there's, you know, they signed for the Cubs, gets COVID, so now he's out 10 games. But there are two signings, Rizzo and Gallo, really puts you know, life into this team. And, and now in a situation where they are like a few games away from the wild card, White Sox are just running away with the Central, 10.5 over the Indians. And the West, the Astros and the A's, and maybe Seattle might have a chance. But uh, in the National League, uh, the, the, the Mets are they're like, a, like on a horse race where you see a horse and it just starts to fall back and fall back. I mean, <laughs> They, they could be, like, lose the division by 12 games. I mean, they've been leading the whole time that, that the Phillies sweep them. And now they have the next four series are against L.A., San Francisco, L.A. and San Francisco, in a way, and home. I mean, they could lose, like, 12, 13 games. Braves are now two back. But the Mets are two and a half back behind the Phillies, and, and who knows where they're going to go. And, and they have to win the division. They've only, only a few games over 500. Brewers over five over the Reds. And, of course, in the West with the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Padres, who are dealing with so many injuries. But there still looks like they'll get the wild card spot in that. And the Dodgers, the Giants have to be one of the biggest surprises in the history of baseball because no one thought, you know, I, I, I still think the Giants have like an eight-game losing streak coming up, but I'm waiting for it to happen. <laughs> We're running out of games for that. But because uh, I'm sure the Dodgers and Padres do not want to play a one-game playoff uh, and have the Giants then get advanced to the playoffs. No, of course they don't. Going to the NFL, we are underway. The Hall of Fame game was last Thursday, and boy, was it ugly, Ira. <laughs> well, the only reason I watched it was for the Steelers. Like, who's going to – Mason Rudolph – this is what I learned. Mason Rudolph cannot be the backup quarterback for the Steelers. Dwayne Haskins looks like he's improved a lot under Mike Tomlin someone who potentially could be maybe the next quarterback for the Steelers. I'd like to see more of him, but he played well. Josh Dobbs, their other backup, played well. Um, Najee Harris, the running back, looked. he played almost the first half of the game from Alabama, their star. looked like he And the offensive line looked okay, but it's hard to judge because they didn't score any points. So how good their offensive line could be. Mason Rudolph was terrible. And uh, on, on defense, Highsmith uh, was tremendous. He's taking over for Bud Dupree at the outside linebacker position. So I like that. It's hard to judge anything with the Cowboys because they didn't play anybody on that team at all. I think they left him in Dallas mostly. And the fact that I think you could say Ezekiel Elliott looks slimmer. That's all I could say. You know, he looks like he lost some weight and he's in shape and those type of things. But that was a very boring game. I mean, it's when you watch it, it, there's no fantasy value and it's not a playoff. It's really hard to watch. I was, it was bad. And I'm a Steeler fan and I love watching the Cowboys. It was hard to watch that game. It really was. Uh, congratulations to Abraham Answer got his first win on the PGA Tour. I think the biggest controversy about this is Harris English. He's leading at 20 under par, cruising along. Supposedly, Answer had finished, and people were, you know, he was five back and thinking, you know, it's over. And then suddenly, they were put on the clock at like the ninth or tenth hole because he's playing with Bryson DeChambeau, who was having a terrible fourth round. So, and he was doing awful. And they, and Bryson is like, again, the, the rulings and the officials and bringing other people in. It's, it doesn't end. It doesn't end with him in terms of hitting the ball and having three officials have to decide, have everyone. So they were put on the clock. What does Harris do? Rush, start rushing. So he double bogeys 11, which is par three in the water, double bogeys 14, 
uh, bogey 16, and suddenly he's now putting on 18 to try to even get into the, uh, the three-way playoff between Answer, Hideki Matsuyano, and Burns, and he doesn't get in. And, uh, and I blame it on Bryson. And, you know, he didn't blame it on Bryson, but it clearly was because he said, I was put on the clock. But it's not his fault he was put on the clock because he's playing with Bryson. Bryson's the one put on the clock. I mean, it was just, it, was, it just shows Bryson it went, at a point when Bryson was out of this tournament, not in contention, and he still is holding up the entire tournament and affecting it at just horrendous behavior. I'm waiting for Brooks to comment on this. Maybe Brooks was away on vacation. Didn't, uh, I don't know what Brooks is playing. I don't know what Brooks had, had in tweeted about. This, yeah, but it was this just, seems perfect. <laughs> oh, um, before we get to Bill Madden, real quick, uh, auto racing. Well, uh, uh, Kurt, uh, Kyle Larson won another fifth race of the year that he's won. These are road courses at Watkins Glen, and next week they played. Uh, they race at Indianapolis. But Chase Elliott, who is like the dominant road course racer, even though Larson might be now, he. He was put, he had to start from the end of the field, which is like at the back of the field, 40 cars, and had a road course, which is impossible, but he's such a great driver. He was able to come back to like being second and almost, almost catch Larson at the end, uh, for it. And then Marcus Rooks Jr. was third, Kyle Bush fourth, and Denny Hamlin fifth. And what you're seeing in the racing this, this year, they added all these road courses, which are different than just running in Daytona 500 type ovals. And it is adding a lot of excitement to the racing. My friends in Nashville were all excited because they said that they were putting millions and millions of dollars into the roads. <laughs> so they were happy to get some better services to drive on uh, as a result of everything happening. Uh, let's go to Bill Madden here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. We're honored to have uh, legendary writer Bill Madden for the New York Daily News, um, author of the book Tom Seaver uh, that just came out. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere you get your books. Uh, Bill, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, my pleasure. So, Bill, I, I w- was able to see Tom Seaver and the Reds. I'm 50 years old, so I sort of missed that ma- that uh, magical time with the Mets. But give give the listeners, because some of them are you know even younger, much younger than me, what a, a like a Tuesday night uh, at Shea Stadium would feel with uh, Tom Seaver on the mound in '68, '69, '70. Those times. Well. Uh... It's funny because I, when I, as I was writing this book and talking about all of his accomplishments, I said to myself, I just realized a lot of people reading this book probably never saw Tom Seaver pitch, may have been not even born when he pitched. And so, therefore, this book may sound like a book on ancient history. To <laughs> uh, he, did, uh, he did have 231 complete games. Uh, and... Um, there's going to come a time when the Baseball Writers Association is going to be voting pitchers in with zero complete games. <laughs> so uh, uh, that kind of gives you a little idea as to what te- what was Seaver was all about. Uh, he's the only pitcher in his. He's one of only two pitchers in history with 300 wins, 3,000 strikeouts, and an ERA of under three. And the other pitcher was Walter Johnson, the big train from the 1920s. So. So when Seaver came along to the Mets in 1967, they had been actually they had been the worst team in baseball, uh, and the, and there was no argument about that. Uh, they had never had a winning season. They'd finished last just about every year of their existence. And um, when he arrived in the clubhouse in 1967, uh, he was mystified by all the talk of the writers and the stories that they were writing about, about concentrating mostly on Casey Stengel's 
beloved losing Mets from the early 60s. And the reason for that was because Casey was such a great quote master, and uh, and it, the writers found it very amusing that he would write, say these disparaging things about his own team. And he was succeeded by Wes Westrom, who was this dull, bland guy who uh, didn't have a whole lot of uh, great quotes for the writers. And so they continued to fall back on the Casey Stengel level of losers. And Seaver saw this and he and heard this and he he was he was frankly he was appalled by it and he and he basically said to the he in the middle of the clubhouse one day in 67 he kind of let it all out and he told the writers and the players who were around at the same time he said you know I'm getting sick and tired of all this lovable loser stuff that you guys write about and everybody talks about here. He says, I had nothing to do with that. I don't have, didn't, I don't want anything to do with Marvelous Marv Thromberg and Rod Keneal and all these, uh, all these lovable losers, Mets of the early 60s. I've been a winner all my life and I, and I don't intend to be uh, part of a losing team now. And of course, uh, he backed it up by winning the National League Rookie of the Year that year. And he was the first really superstar Mets player. Uh, started his rookie year and it never subsided from the whole time he was there. And when Seaver was on the mound, it was electric. And Shea Stadium was electric. I mean, he caught on immediately. And then, of course, two years later, in 1969, uh, the lovable losers were in the World Series and won the World Series, their first winning team in their existence. And, and it was all because of Seaver. And, and you write in your book about how you talked to Tom about he did not like the course of baseball, where we saw in the World Series when Ian Snell was pulled out of a game and after like a few innings, you know, a few innings because of just the computer said so. And he was at the 100 pitch count. I mean, it said Seavers, you said his pitch count was sometimes 150. And when he was there to pitch, he's pitching nine innings and, and there better be a good reason why he's going to come out of that game. And I guess that, you know, we miss that in baseball a little bit because you do like those days when it's like when the star pitcher is going to pitch, he's going to pitch nine innings. This is his game to win or lose, and you're going to get uh, 100% effort. Yeah, in the later years of his life, uh, when he had moved out to Calistoga, California, and built himself his own vineyard out there to grow grapes and make wine, uh, he would sit out in the vineyard uh, during the day on a little uh, chair he had out in the far end of the vineyard, and he'd, he'd sit there and he'd do the New York Times crossword puzzle and he would read the San Francisco Examiner to check out the box scores. But it got to a point where he just threw his hands up in disgust when he saw one box score after another where the pitchers, starting pitchers coming out of the game after five or six innings. And he just could not tolerate the way the game has changed. He just couldn't relate to it and he couldn't tolerate it because he came from an era where pitchers prided themselves in finishing what they started. Uh, we're talking about Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton and Phil Necro and, and all the pitchers of his era. These guys were all workhorses. And uh, probably the best example I can give you of Seaver's attitude towards all of this was when he won his 300th game at Yankee Stadium in uh, 1985. And... Um, he, I asked him about his 
favorite memories or most important parts of that game. And he kind of shook me off and he said, no, there was only one thing about that game that mattered most to me. And I said, what was that? He said, it was a complete game. I was determined to pitch a complete game. And not only did he pitch a complete game, but he threw 143 pitches in that game. And how old was he in that game? (laughs) And he was 39 years old. (laughs) Right. Um, And then you. That was what what Tom Seaver was all about. Mm -hmm. And then, really, that 69 season. I mean, Namath is in lore of New York in terms of you know, glorified because of the uh, the underdog beating the Colts in the Super Bowl when their chances were, were slim to none. And But going into the 69 season, the Mets, as you wrote in the book, their odds to win the World Series, or the pennant actually, was 100-1. to 1. And they actually, on receivers back, 25-7, and 7, 2.21 ERA. She said the Cy Young was able to beat the Braves and then beat the Orioles in, in, to win the World Series. Uh, uh, and a great Orioles team. Yeah, well... Like I said, they had not ever had a winning season up until 1969. And so there was no reason to think that they were going to be in the World Series that year. Hence the odds makers giving them those kind of long, long, long odds. And um, uh, it, was, it was quite a remarkable feat when you think about the fact that not only did they perform this great, amazing deep, but they did it against two very, really good teams, the Braves of Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews and that group. And, of course, the, uh, of course the, um, the Orioles, which were one of the best teams, maybe of all time, that Orioles team, uh, with Frank Robinson and Bill Powell and Brooks Robinson and, and all of those guys on that team that are in the Hall of Fame now. And uh, they seemed invincible. Uh, and it was... The way that World Series unfolded with the Mets winning these games in, in, in remarkable fashion, there was a lot of quirky things that happened in that World Series that made you think that, uh, that God was a Mets fan, as somebody said. Uh, and um, so that's what made it quite remarkable. I mean, the fact that, that not only did they win, but they they did so by beating one of the greatest teams of all time, that, that 1969 Orioles team. We're talking to Bill Madden, author of the Tom Seaver book just came out. Uh, it's the most authoritative uh, book about Tom Seaver. Just tremendous. He's uh, such insight. Um, but you talked about after they won the World Series that the legend, that's where really Tom Seaver became, you know, from Vegas all around. Because when you win it back in those days, like now you can be a superstar. You could be Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City and people are like in Golden State, Steph Curry. But back in those days to to win in New York, to be the, the best pitcher in the best city. And, and you mentioned in the book how the Mets were getting two million fans a game, whereas the Yankees only got a million. That's just that gave him a national fame. Well, that was the other crazy thing about the Mets because uh, when they were losing bad, badly every year under Casey Stengel, they were outdrawing the Yankees by a long shot. And it was, a, it was, a, it was you could chalk it up to New York had a thirst for National League Baseball that uh, had not been abated since the Giants and the Dodgers left town in 1958. And um, here comes these Mets and uh, it didn't matter to the New York fans they were National League fans, and it didn't matter that the Mets were awful, but Casey Stengel made them cute and lovable. And so that's what happened there. And then, of course, um, you know, along comes Seaver, and everything changed. But it was, um, 
I think you mentioned the fact that Namath had kind of taken over the town with his flamboyant personality and the great, the great upset win by the uh, by the Jets over the Colts. Uh, the Mets were kind of a little different in that um, Seaver wasn't flamboyant. He was just a dominant, dominant pitcher. And, uh, of course, New York fell in love with him, and they fell in love with the Mets, uh, the winning Mets. And uh, then after the season, Sam and his wife Nancy were all over the place. They were on all these television shows, and they they, they went out to Las Vegas, and it was an actor or an act that all the Mets players were in out in uh, out Las Vegas, and that got a lot of attention. And Tom was on the cover of all the magazines, and uh, it suddenly became the Tom and Nancy show, which uh, brought about some jealousy on the part of his teammates. Uh, and but at the time, anyway, uh, as I wrote in the book, Camelot was back in New York, and. Instead of uh, Jack and Jackie, we had Tom and Nancy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then you talked about 70, 71, 72, all these great years. And then 73 gets back to the World Series. And then you, you have the situation was Gil Hodges, who was only, I think you wrote in the book, 47 years old, who was the manager of the team, uh, passed away. And uh, they put Yogi Bear in as a manager. And, and, and you're talked about Tom's you know, relationship with Yogi. We just had John Pess on a few months ago talking about the book about Yogi Bear and certainly it covers his whole history. Uh, but uh, that was and then at 73 in the World Series, when they're up three, two on the A's, Yogi makes some poor decisions and, and cost him maybe a second world championship. Yeah, well, it was a decision that haunted Yogi for the rest of his life. Uh, the Mets are up three to two and uh, Seaver and. John Matlack uh, were their two best pitchers, but uh, they were both. Seaver would have been on three days rest if they picked him to pitch game uh, game six. And meanwhile, you had George Stone, who had been their hottest pitcher down the stretch, and he finished with a twelve and three record that year, I think. And he won, I think he won seven or eight of his last decisions. And he was the most logical guy to put in that for game six because you would still have Seaver as a backup on normal rest for Game 7 and Matlock in the bullpen or whatever. But Yogi was adamant that he was going to, he went for the quick kill and he pitched Seaver in Game 6. And Seaver didn't pitch badly. He gave up a, a couple of uh, RBI doubles to Reggie Jackson. But other than that, he pitched pretty well. And then, of course, the bullpen lost the game for him. Uh, and now they're down to... Um, now they're down to Game 7, and nobody even talks about the fact that Matlock got batted around pretty badly in Game 7, and, and they blew the, and they lost the series. And I think a lot of people felt they should have won that series if Yogi had not made that move. If he'd come with George Stone anyway in Game 6, and he still would have had Seaver on normal rest. So Seaver's there for nine years. He's a toast to the town. He's, they called him, his nickname was the franchise. So that's what he was. And then you write in the book in detail. I think nobody's ever done detail like you've done on this subject um, about Don Grant, who took over the, the sort of the running of the Mets and the dispute over money with Seaver and to the point where actually the franchise was, was, uh, was traded to the Reds. Uh, just very interesting in the chapters in terms of how you talked about what Don Grant did to upset Seaver and how this icon, using Dick Young, writers in the paper, everything about it was just very interesting. Yeah, well, of course, that was a, that was a very... Uh tumultuous time in New York baseball history that whole summer of 1977. And um, it all started really the year before with the advent of free agency. And uh, 
1976, and Seaver made it a point. He he was already under contract uh, with the Mets, and he made it a point that he really free agency was fine, and he was glad for his fellow players that they were going to get this, and he was part of the negotiating committee anyway that that won free agency for the players uh, and created this system. But he said at the time, he said, I don't want to ever leave the Mets. And that's really the way it was until he saw all these huge contracts coming down uh, by guys who were far inferior to him. One of them was with Nolan Ryan and with the Angels got a huge contract. And um, uh, uh, so he saw these contracts coming down and he went to the Mets and he went to M. Donald Grant, who was the chairman of the Mets, and he talked to him about at least tweaking his contract or doing something to adjust it so he would get in it into where his at least some sort of equality as far as what he was making and what the free agent pitchers were making that were far inferior to him. But Grant was having none of it. And at the same time, Sieber was criticizing Grant in the papers for his failure to sign any free agents to help the team get better. And so this conflict was going on for the better part of a year and a half. And it reached its climax in the summer of 77, close to the trading deadline, which was on June the 15th. Seaver was still carping away about it, about Grant and free agency and his own contract. And then Grant enlisted the services of Dick Grant, of, I'm sorry, of Dick Young, the columnist for the New York Daily News, who happened to be my mentor. Oh, I was no. not at the news at the time. Uh, I joined the news the following year. But Young was the most powerful columnist in New York. And Young gladly took Grant's uh, invitation to start knocking Seaver and took the management side on this whole thing and wrote a series of columns calling Seaver an ingrate and greedy and there's cancer on the team. And it, it got very ugly. And finally, it got to a point where Grant, where Seaver was not budging, and Grant was not budging, and Grant finally threatened to trade Seaver if he didn't stop with this whole business with wanting to renegotiate his contract. At that point in time, Seaver decided to go over Grant's head, and he negotiated his own uh, two-year extension with um, Mrs. DeRolay. She was the daughter of Joan Payson, the original Mets owner. So he got this... He got his own deal, and it looked like this situation had finally become resolved and that Sieber would be staying a Met. And then Young wrote one more column in which I put in the book the 33 words that effectively drove Tom Sieber out of town. And those 33 words from Young's column were, quote, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Sieber, and that galls Tom because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly, and Tom Seaver has long treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother, unquote. Well, Seaver was at the pool at the Atlanta Hotel where the Mets were staying. This is on June 15th. And he was sitting around the pool, and somebody brought this thick young column to him and showed it to him. He looked over the column. He got up from his chair. He went, marched across the way to his room, got on the phone, and called Joe McDonald the general manager of the Mets up in New York, and he said, get me the hell out of here. Get me out of here. I will not tolerate this. He has brought my family into this, and this is something I cannot accept. So get me out of here. 
And that night, Grant uh, and McDonald, they traded Seaver to the Reds, and they traded Dave Kingman, the all-time Mets home run hitter, to uh, San Diego. And they called that the, the Midnight Massacre. As it was, it was the darkest day in Mets history. And then he was successful in, in Cincinnati. And then you, you mentioned in the book, he, like this whole love affair with the Mets. It should be like a play almost, uh, almost a Shakespearean type play because he comes back to the Mets. They bring him back for one year, but they forget to protect him in the old draft. People, instead of giving amateur draft picks, which they do now, you actually, if in the draft, if someone signed a free agent, they could take a player. And they, they brought him back for one year and then they lose him to the White Sox, which is crazy. Yeah, it was. In fact, that was when uh, my relationship with Seaver became more than just a player-writer relationship because I got tipped off to this whole thing with the the, um, the free agent compensation draft. I had a friend of mine who was working in the commissioner's office, and he gave me a call. It was two days before the draft. I was at my office at the Daily News, and he said to me, he said, are you uh, writing anything on the draft on on Friday. This guy happened to be a White Sox fan, too. And I said, no, I'm probably not going to write much about it because neither New York teams lost a free agent, so it's not going to be a New York story. And he said, uh, Bill, I think it might be a very big New York story. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, you're not going to believe this, but the Mets have left Seaver unprotected. I said, how do you know that? He says, well, I'm, I'm looking at the unprotected list right in front of me here, and he's not protected. And not only that, but I called the White Sox. They had the first pick in this draft. And he says, they told me they couldn't believe Seaver was unprotected either, and they're going to take him tomorrow on Friday. I said, wow, this is this certainly is a huge story. In fact, it turned out to be probably the biggest story I ever broke for the Daily News. But I had to get a confirmation on it, so I called Frank Cash and the general manager, and I, I got him out of a luncheon, actually, and I told him, I said, look, Frank, I'm sorry to get you out of this luncheon, but I, I have. It's come to my attention that you've left Seaver unprotected uh, in uh, Friday's compensation draft. And he was a silence on the phone and cash and said, "Well, yeah, we did. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, Billy. We did leave him unprotected, but we didn't think anybody would be taking a 39-year-old pitcher." And I said, "Well, Frank, I hate to disappoint you, but the White Sox are going to take him." I've I have that on very good authority. So there's another silence on the phone, and Frank said, well, you got to write what you got to write. So I was prepared to just go with the story, but then I felt I had an obligation to Seaver to not blindside him the next day with his story because this was a traumatic event in his life. He was going to have to leave the Mets again, uproot his family, and go to Chicago, the other league with a designated hitter and everything else about it. And... um it was just, you know, I just didn't want to write this story and not at least call him for a comment and, and whatever, give him a heads up. Well, he was very appreciative that I called him, very appreciative. And um, the amazing thing about this is the story never got out. Too many people knew about it, but it, this was, you got to remember, this is not, this was a whole different era. We had no Twitter back then. We had no Facebook. We had no cell phones. We had this was a whole different era. And so we sat on the story until our last edition at one thirty in the morning went off. So, so we didn't give anybody a chance to catch up on it. And um, from that day on, I think Seaver looked at me as somewhat something, someone more than just another writer, because 
when he thought about it, I guess, you know, here is this traumatic event in his life, and the commissioner's office didn't tell him he was going to have to leave the Mets. The Mets didn't tell him he was going to have to leave the Mets. The White Sox didn't call him. I called him. And from that day on, uh, we had a different kind of a relationship. And ironically, <laughs> funny, two years later, 1986, uh, he is um, now in, in the final year of his contract with the White Sox. The White Sox are going nowhere, and he's not having a particularly good year, and he was very, he was homesick. He wanted to get back to New York. And so he asked Ken Harrelson, the White Sox general manager, if he would trade him, and if he could work out a trade to get him back to the Mets. Well, you have to remember, this is 86 now, and the Mets are on their way to a world championship, and they were loaded with pitching. They had Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling and Sid Fernandez and and all these other guys, and Davey Johnson wanted no part of Seaver being brought in there, and he told Cashin that, forget about it, we don't need him. And so Cashin um, told uh, Hawk that he, Hawk Harrison, that he couldn't, they weren't going to be able to do the deal. So now Seaver calls me. Uh, <laughs> You're his agent, probably, trying to do this work to arrange this. Well, it seemed like I became his agent. He calls me and he says, he explains all this to me, and he says, I need a favor from you. And I said, what do you need? He said, can you call Steinbrenner for me? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess. I said, what do you want me to tell him? He says, well, tell him I need to get back to New York for family reasons and everything else, and I would love to finish my career with the Yankees. So I said to myself, I said, well, I said to him, I said, well, I'll call him, and I said, this could probably be, work out well for you, Tom, because this is right out of George's playbook to do a to upstage the Mets while, they're, while they've taken over the town on their way to the World Series. And he, here he could upstage them by bringing Tom Seaver back to New York a third time, only as a Yankee. But surprisingly, when I called George, he was only lukewarm to this idea. And I, I, never, I never got a satisfactory explanation from him. And all the years later, I wrote a I wrote a book on him um, uh, back in 2010 and I wrote in the book how I asked him a few times after that and he never gave me an answer as to why he didn't want to make the deal for Seaver. It got hung up over a shortstop named Carlos Martinez. He was a six foot six shortstop and he was regarded as one of the Yankees' top prospects and Harrelson had to have him in the deal or he wouldn't do it. And Steinbrenner was telling me, oh, I can't give up this guy. He's our best pro prospect. I said, George, we're talking Tom Seaver here. I, I couldn't believe this. I'm in the middle of this thing. Hawk Harrelson's trying to get me to talk Steinbrenner into this deal. And Seaver's trying to talk, get me to talk him into this deal. But he wouldn't budge for whatever reason. And so the deal, felt, the deal never went anywhere. And uh, Harrelson called me that day, and he said, look, George won't give up Martinez, and I can't do it without him, so I'm going to trade Seaver to the Red Sox for uh, Steve Lyons, and that's what happened. And you mentioned when the Mets won the World Series, he was on the bench of the Red. It was so sad he got hurt at that year, at the end of the year, and so he's sitting on the bench, and he's finally seeing the Mets win the World Series, but he's sitting in the Red Sox bench in that famous World Series. So that was a sad way to, to actually end his career. Cruel irony, for sure. Yeah, there he was. He was helpless to, he was helpless to do anything for them because he had he had uh, torn up some cartilage in his knee uh, late in the season, and uh, he had to go on the disabled list, and um, he couldn't help them. But he was he was sitting in the dugout and watching this 
watching the Mets win this World Series in such improbable fashion in those last two games at Chase Stadium. Well, Bill, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you today. Um, you're the author of Tom Seaver. Uh, it's uh, available, I said, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon. Uh, you can buy it online. A great book, an easy read, and really a lot of stories about uh, just interesting stories. And anybody wants to learn about Seaver who's younger or people who's, who grew up with Seaver and saw the pool he had on the city and also the country, um, it's just a perfect book to read. So, Bill, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Okay, thanks a lot. It's Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. A terrific, that's a great. You mentioned in your book that, uh, that when Tom Brady tried to uh, trademark terrific, Tom Terrific, that uh, Seavers was able to, and then so many people complained. Uh, what was the story? So many people complained that, they, that he didn't get, Tom Brady was not able to get the nickname Tom Terrific? Yeah, what happened is it went to court, uh, and, a, and, a, and a court ruled in, in, in uh, people on Seaver's behalf who would file this uh, complaint or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I guess it was sort of a lawsuit, but anyway, uh, a judge ruled that, um, that, that the Tom Terrific nickname was uh, definitely Tom Seaver's, and uh, and so I, as I wrote in the book, this was his 312th last victory. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much. Anybody, please read this book. It's a tremendous book. Go and get it. And Bill, I appreciate you taking some time out to talk about Tom Seaver. Thank you so much. Great stuff there here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, what's your plans for this week? Dodgers, Mets, uh, Friday night at City Field uh, against Walker Bueller plays for the Dodgers. So I'm excited. Maybe catch uh, another another one of those Dodgers Mets series. So I'm excited about that. And we didn't mention the, the men's track in the Olympics did terrible. They only won the 4x400 at the end. Everyone thought with Usain Bolt not running, they were going to be great, but really just one of the worst Olympics they've ever had. And Ryan Krauser is one of the best uh, uh, shot putters ever. He, he won easily. But in the women's track, Allison Felix uh, passed Carl Lewis with 11 medals. She won the bronze in the 400 meters and then won a, the gold in the relay. Uh, great career for Allison Felix. And Molly Seidel, a, a big runner. So ever, she won her, th- her third marathon in the toughest field ever. She ended up winning the bronze behind the two Kenyans who are the two best of all time. So it was amazing that Molly Sider was able to pull that off. But a great, the women's track teams did amazing. The men's did terrible. But no, I'm excited for Mets Dodgers, and we'll talk about it next week and should have some good guests on too. Yep, and we are out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.